Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is made by Just Speak and PopSock Media with Renews. The stories shared here represent individual opinions and experiences, and some names have been changed. This episode contains references to drug addiction, disordered eating, racism, suicide, and violence. There's also some strong language. If you choose to listen, please take care. Just like everyone else, New Zealanders love true crime. We love a mystery, a victim, a villain. The bad guy goes to jail and the good guys go back to their lives. But real life isn't that straightforward. Everyone I've met has been a good person who made bad choices, not a bad person. In this series, we're going to hear from people who have actually been through outside our justice system. I went into court that day and the judge was filling in for another judge and my lawyer said, can I swear? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he said, you're fucked. There were warning signs of him not being okay. He was stuck in remand, didn't know how long he was looking at. They said, look down, um, my waters are breaking. And they said, get up on the table, we'll deliver your baby then. And I said, I'm not delivering my baby in a court cell. We're going to learn how it all works. Every few years we've got another strategy and another strategy. And each time it looks great, but nothing changes. What it's like to live through it. Going to prison was like disappearing like it was just about becoming nothing you're just in this concrete box your only outlet is getting angry you've gone into this completely unknown environment where testosterone and power is of importance we're going to imagine a future with a truly just justice system at its center no matter how deep the hole there's always a way out it's not just the responsibility of corrections to fix this injustice, but it's all of our responsibility as people living in Aotearoa. We're your hosts. My name is Anahaya Scottney. My iwi is Ngai Tuhoi. I grew up in Te Tara in Wellington. I'm an artist. I make zines, comics, I make music, and I'm also an actress in theatre and in movies. And I'm Tommy Doran. I'm studying criminology at the moment, doing my honours at Teheringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. I'm a recovering addict and I've been to prison myself. I've also previously volunteered for Just Speak, the organisation which is behind this podcast. Just Speak is a youth-powered movement for transformational change of the criminal justice system towards a fair, just and flourishing Aotearoa. They're going to help us break down what's not working and how it might be done differently for the better. Okay, bro, are you ready to do this? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, one, two, three. Welcome to True True Justice. Justice. Okay, cool. So, Tommy, as the host with actual lived experience of the justice system, do you maybe want to start by telling us a little bit about your backstory? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I could go on all day about my shit, but I'll try to do it quickly. <laughs> so um, basically, I had learning difficulties growing up, and I found it really hard to concentrate. And for that reason, I thought I was stupid and just, um, you know, felt bad about myself. So basically, I started to look for validation elsewhere, and I did that by just being a nuisance, really. So I'd do anything to, you know, rebel and be the class clown, if you know what I mean. It got to a certain age where, for me, where the thing to do to rebel was to take drugs. So that started with cannabis, um, moved on to alcohol, and eventually graduated to methamphetamine. Meth made me feel powerful when I was so used to feeling powerless. I left school at about 15, I got a job and had a bit more money at my disposal, and my meth addiction gradually got worse. So, um, you know, eventually it got to the point where I couldn't function in a workplace anymore. So I got into wheeling, dealing and stealing. And uh, in the end, I was basically stealing cars and breaking into houses and other things, you know, looking for cash or just any sort of items of value that I could pawn off to uh, feed my addiction. And inevitably, that just led me to incarceration. Far out, man. That sounds like a pretty massive journey. So thank you so much for sharing that, bro. Yeah, no worries. In this episode of True Justice, we're going to be hearing about what it's like to be arrested, held in the cells, and then sent off to prison. Before we hear from others about that, can you paint a picture for us about what happened after your arrest, Tommy? Did you get taken to the cells? So, full disclosure, I've been arrested quite a few times, but the time that landed me in prison was after a three-day bender, so I was coming down in the cells pretty hard. I can imagine that would have been quite... Dicey. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, um, yeah, I mean, here's, here's a little snippet of how I explained it to the podcast producers a while back. Um, just a warning, I was using some pretty colourful language. I wanted to fucking kill myself, you know, like I was losing the plot. They put me in a suicide cell with a big window where they can see you, you know, so I had no, like, darkness or anything. And there was a camera in there and I was fucking screaming at the camera and shit, like trying to get their attention tell them I need, you know, I need to be let out. And um, they just ignored me until I went to sleep. So, yeah, it was pretty full on. Yeah, man, it sounds turbo. What happened after that, like? Yeah, so eventually I was given police bail. Is bail like in American TV shows, like you pay someone money to be let out of prison? Yeah, no, nah, it's a little bit more complicated than that over here. So bail is when you're released on active charges and they give you a court date. Uh, maybe some conditions like a curfew or not to consume illicit substances and sometimes, you know, not to associate with certain people. And basically, if you breach your bail conditions, they have grounds to arrest you and bring you back into custody. OK, so basically you kind of have to be on your best behaviour. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. OK. So um, I was given bail and sent off to wait for a court date. But, uh, yeah, then I got arrested again a couple of weeks later uh, in a stolen car, and this time they didn't give me bail. Okay, so without bail, this time you're held in the cells until your court appearance. Yep, and then after court as well. So the reason for that was that when I was arrested in that stolen car, my flatmate was with me, and he got arrested as well. So um, he just happened to, you know, get in front of the judge before me and they were like, nah, we can't release you to the same address because you guys are co-offenders and so you're, um, you're on non-association orders now. Is that like a rule so you can't go to the same address? Yeah, it's not so much like a rule, but, you know, it's up to the judge's discretion. So, um, yeah, I did try to find somewhere else to go, but I couldn't. So, um, yeah, I was in the police cells for about three days. But at least I knew I was going to prison, you know. 
some people get caught off guard, like my friend Jess. So I come from a really good family where there wasn't a lot of drugs or alcohol or violence or anything like that, really. As a kid, Jess loved Skeletor and playing with her cousins. She wanted to work at Kmart when she was older so she could give the poor kids lollies for free. But when Jess hit her teenage years, she really started to struggle with mental health and self-image. And she turned to drugs to escape. And I guess it just goes with the territory. Um, you know, doing criminal stuff when you're using drugs. And that was that just became the only life I knew, really, from the age of sort of 15. Jess ended up battling a meth addiction, like me, and this landed her in prison a couple of times on remand. And then eventually she was caught selling meth. This was actually the wake-up call she needed. She went straight to rehab after that arrest, and by the time her court date rolled around, Jess was in a good place. So I was six months clean and sober, and I did my pre-sentence or probation report, and I was looking at 12 months home D. So it's my understanding that a probation report is something that's given to the judge to give a bit more detail and context about the person being sentenced, right? And even recommending what a good sentence might be. Yeah, that's basically it. And Jess's report recommended she serve home detention instead of prison time, especially because she'd taken the initiative and gotten clean on her own terms. She'd even gone and lined up a support house to live in while she served her home detention. So I went to the supermarket and got all my food, put it in the support house freezer and fridge. Uh, you know, really thought I was going to get home detention. Didn't buy some boots I liked because I thought they won't go over the bracelet. Um, went into court that day and the judge was filling in for another judge and my lawyer said, can I swear? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he said, you're fucked. You're fucked. Oh my gosh, that would be such a stressful thing to hear from the lawyer who's representing you in court, eh? Yeah, but that's a thing. So much of how things pan out for you can depend on random things like what judge you get. Jess says she felt like... The judge did not care. He knew nothing about addiction. So it was pretty much guaranteed I was going to prison for a while. We asked the Ministry of Justice what training is in place to help judges understand addiction. They said it's addressed in a number of education programmes for the judiciary. We also asked how much judges' personal views impact sentencing decisions, but they didn't reply to that point. Yeah, so I went, went up on the charges, which was supply of meth, and I got given four and a half years that day in prison. So it was a real shock, and I was wearing my dress, and I didn't have any other clothes packed. I remember going into the prison in the Chubb van, looking back at Auckland City, being quite, I don't know, I guess just like, oh my God, four and a half years is quite a lot to swallow uh, when you're not expecting it. So we'll come back to Jess. In the meantime, let's meet someone else. This is Jamie. We've got three horses, two dogs, chickens and... They kind of carry on. <laughs> Jamie lives on a lifestyle block around Hamilton with her daughter and all of those animals. She's super into painting, she paints pet portraits, and she's a real horse girl. On the weekends, she teaches her daughter how to ride. Jamie's 31 now, and her first brush with the law came 10 years ago. My criminal history is so minuscule, like I stole a cardboard cutout of Justin Bieber, like that's literally my criminal history. And <laughs> don't judge me. <laughs> to be honest, I kind of understand. I am a believer from way back, from way back in his, his baby days, but that's a digression. 
Jamie was 21 at the time of the Bieber incident and wasn't even a believer herself. She stole it for a friend of hers, but the shop security caught up with her and she had to go to court. That time, she got off with a fine. But then in 2020, Jamie was arrested as part of a major methamphetamine bust, which her partner was at the centre of. It was probably about four, five o'clock in the morning. It was like a super rainy, stormy night, like it had been thundering and lightning all night. My partner woke me up and our front gates, we got metal front gates, were getting grinded off. And he ran outside and I went straight to my daughter's room. Jamie's 11-year-old daughter was asleep in her bed down the hall. So the armed offenders and that all swarmed the property. Jamie says she was grabbed by the cops along with her daughter and they were hauled out in the rain onto their driveway where they already had her partner in custody. They had him face down in the garden and they zip-tied him and um, we were ordered out of the house and it was like pissing down with rain and we were standing in the driveway and like we were in our pyjamas, you know, and we just got absolutely saturated. Eventually the cops took pity on them. We had like a house bus that was getting sort of renovated and so they put us in there and we were in there for a good couple of hours and we were freezing cold and my daughter and I asked like so many times for them to take the zip ties off my partner's hands because he, his hands were blue, like super blue. But the police refused. After an hour or so, Jamie says she was allowed to go and get some dry clothes. And then um, went back to the house bus and like my daughter was expected to dress in front of the male police guard that was um, at the entrance of the bus. So she just had to put her clothes on top of her wet clothes. A friend of Jamie's came to pick up her daughter and then Jamie and her partner were taken down to the station. Jamie was facing a bunch of charges in connection with the bust and every one of them would go on to be dismissed or withdrawn, but she didn't know that yet. Jamie spoke to a lawyer and was taken to her cell. We asked the police about Jamie's case, including her saying that her 11-year-old daughter had to change in front of a male officer and that her partner's hands went blue because of the zip ties. Police said they found no evidence to substantiate Jamie's claims about the night of the search warrant and the Independent Police Conduct Authority found there was no misconduct or neglect of duty. For a number of different reasons, mostly to do with the seriousness of the charges her partner was facing, the judge decided it was best for Jamie to remain in custody. So she sat there for days waiting for a court date and begging to be able to call her girl, whose name we are bleeping here. I can't be in jail and have no idea what's going on. And so I was like, I need to, like, I need to call my daughter. I need to find out what's going on. So they called my sister. Well, I only managed to talk to her for like a minute, a minute and a half. And she said to me, she's like, yep, I'm getting dropped off here, like my daughter. It's all good, don't worry about Like, I'll sort it out. Bless her, she just had a baby herself not long ago. And, but Jamie's um, a mum. And she couldn't stop worrying. Like, the longest I've been without my daughter is, like, 10 days. is the longest we've ever been apart. So Jamie waited in the police cells for two nights and three days. Yeah, this bit again. Honestly, by the end of my three days, I couldn't wait to get to Mount Eden Prison because I knew I could have a shower, maybe watch some Shortland Street and kick back, you know? Oh my gosh, I used to be on that show way back when, in 2019. Oh really? Who are you? I was Angel. I was like a receptionist, Chris's PA and influencer girl about the hospital. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Shortland Street's really big in prison. True, so you're like literally hanging out for Shorty because you were just sort of J-chilling and... I don't know, a bit bored. Yeah, 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 that's one way to put it, I guess. 
I was like, I need a toothbrush, I need to have a shower, like this is ridiculous. And then um, and they said, oh yeah, we'll sort that out for you, we'll sort it out. Jamie did get her shower, eventually. Jamie wasn't totally alone in the cells. Her partner was there too, though he was at the other end of the block. We spent like the whole night whistling to each other. Jamie could hear him, but she says she didn't get a chance to see him till her last day in the cells, when she finally went to court to hear her fate. On the way back from court, Jamie walked past her partner's cell where the guards had put cardboard in the windows to his door so that she wouldn't be able to see him. As I got to his cell, I like reached out and tried to grab the cardboard away so I could talk to him or see him, and then I got like frog marched to my back to my cell and my partner just went off, like went absolutely psycho, like he was like screaming at him. And then um, about 10 minutes later, he got unlocked and um, they put bits of cardboard up by my cell and they were taking him away and he was trying to call out to me, saying like he loves me and, you know, and I didn't know at the time, but they actually took him down to the end cell and gave him a hiding, like they handcuffed him and gave him a hiding, and he was pissing blood for like two weeks. We've seen a letter that Jamie got from her partner in jail at the time that backs this up. He says the police beat him up and that he had blood in his urine afterwards, as well as a couple of very sore ribs, but he didn't intend to make an official complaint about it. We asked police about this, and they said that the issue hadn't been raised with them or the Independent Police Conduct Authority, and that they had no further comment. In court, the judge ordered Jamie to be held on remand at Auckland Region Women's Corrections Facility, we'll call it Auckland Women's, until her next court date in September. She'd have to wait for eight weeks in prison before knowing her fate. Jamie's partner was sentenced to five years and three months for manufacturing and supplying methamphetamine, participating in an organised criminal group and unlawful possession of materials for the manufacture of pay. He'll be up for parole soon. Bro, I'm going to be real, like, I feel like a lot of this is already, like, quite heavy and full-on for someone who maybe hasn't been through that process. We're not even in prison yet. Yeah, I know, right? The arrest processes are pretty awful for a lot of people. I mean, obviously, it's never going to be a fun experience, but I think there are a lot of ways it could be made less terrible. Especially considering at this point in the process, a lot of people haven't even been convicted of anything. They've only been accused of a crime. Yeah, that's so true. So, Tommy, I want to circle back around to your experience, my friend. What happened at the end of your three days in the cells? So, I was transferred to Mount Eden Prison on remand. Oh, so is that the castle-looking fortress I've seen from the train line? Yeah, that's the old Mount Eden Prison, which is right in the middle of central Auckland. It was built in the 1870s, and people call it the Rock because it's so huge in concrete, and apparently it's haunted. But there's a newer building right next door, and that's where I was put. It's called the Auckland Central Remand Prison, or ACRAP as we used to call it. So you're driven in and piled out of the van and taken into the receiving office, which people call the RO. And the day that I went in, the screws, that's what we call the guards, were playing that Phil Collins song. The lyrics go, I've been a prisoner all my life, take me home. Bro, that's so dark. Like, I just didn't even know what to expect. We're back with Jamie, who's just been transferred to Auckland Women's to wait for her sentencing. Like, I've never been to prison before. I've known of people that have, 
but yeah I don't think that it really prepared me for actually what it's like. I got put into a, like a holding cell and then um, got taken out of the holding cell and had to like strip down naked. The floor is like almost like a stainless steel kind of shower floor. It's like a mirrored kind of floor. And then um, and this guard, she was like, and now squat. And I was like, pardon? And she was like, yes, yeah, so squat. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, okay, actual squat. And then so I got, and she's like, now cough. And I was like, is she taking the piss or is this actually how it goes? And then she gave me a pair of undies that was like a parachute. And then they um, had radioed somebody to take me to the unit. And I said, is there like, is there any socks? Because my feet are real cold. And she like looked at the other lady next to her and kind of like laughed and was like, oh no, honey, we don't have socks. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, sorry. And um, and then they're just kind of like having like a giggle to each other, like, oh, what a, what a rookie kind of thing. And I was just like, okay. Yeah, the RO is not a very nice place. You've got people yelling all sorts of shit at you under the door, you know, scary looking people coming up to the windows, but obviously you can't show any emotion because you'll just get eaten alive. I remember this one screw when I was being processed, he was looking at me all macho and stuff, you know, just trying to eye me out and he asked me, what are you in here for bro? And I was like, uh, stealing cars. And he goes, oh, if you stole my car, I'd fucking kill you. That sounds so brutal. So a few of the people we spoke with for this series told us that RO is a place that you get stripped of your dignity and turned into a number. Did you experience that and do you agree with that, Tommy? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And I mean, the thing is that once you're a number, your feelings or, you know, any issues that existed before your incarceration, you know, just just no longer considered. Like Jess, for example, she had an eating disorder when she went in and she reckons anything you battle with outside of prison just becomes so much worse inside prison. You're in a really controlled environment and you lose a lack of control. Well, for me, I had to like grab onto any sense of control that I could find and that was definitely with my eating disorder. And when Jess was first being processed, the guards seemed to almost hone in on this vulnerability of hers. I'll never forget this one guard who was just such a bitch. Honestly, she was such a bitch and, and you just can't even explain her any other way. And she's one of those people that likes to be nasty. She was one of the first guards I encountered. I remember her saying to me, are you happy? Isn't he pregnant? And I was like, no. So I was super skinny, but I did have like um, a bloated belly from my eating disorder. And she and she yeah, asked me if I was pregnant. And I was like, no. And she was like, Jesus, woman, get down on the floor and do some sit-ups. And I'll never forget it. Because I was just like, fuck, you know, like I was so like obsessed with my weight and really insecure that it just really hurt my feelings. Jess eventually got an apology for this, but it did some damage. It was just really nasty. Now looking back, just the only way I knew how to uh, cope with my emotions is by, you know, doing these um, kind of controlling things. So uh, I started restricting my intake of food. Half an apple would give me guilt. Uh, I ended up doing like copious amounts of star jumps, a lot of exercise. By the time that Jess was released, months later, her weight was down to 45 kgs. That's so tiny. And the prison hadn't clocked on to the fact that she wasn't eating. Because we wore big green jumpsuits and big orange jumpsuits, I didn't know, and I had body dysmorphia, so when I got out and I remember the doctor putting the stethoscope or whatever on my heart, and I just remember crying. 
because I was so little and tiny and I, didn't, I hadn't realised that I'd sort of done that to my body. I keep thinking about the guards playing that song when you went in, Tommy, and laughing at Jamie asking for socks. Like, I'm sure being a guard can't be easy, but I don't know, that kind of stuff to me feels like the guards were going above and beyond to be cruel. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And um, my bro Paul actually put this into perspective quite well. You just cattle, they unlock you and lock you up. They sort of don't want to do paperwork. You know, some of them just... They aren't there to um, you know, do anything but get paid. Tommy, there's an interview that you did, bro, with your mate Blaine, who also went through prison, and it stuck with me because of how the two of you talked about the receiving office, the RO. Can we play it? Yeah, for sure. The first voice that you're going to hear is Blaine's. The guards don't give a shit about you, to be honest. That's the, yeah, bro, that shit haunts me, eh? <laughs> haunts me, bro. Yeah. I have nightmares about it. I have nightmares about this getting degraded. Yeah. You know, like, guards just, like, laughing at you and you're coming down, you're like, yeah. fucked. Yeah. And they're like, they're just making you feel like a piece of shit. Yeah. And you get left in this box for, like, five hours. Literally, don't know what they're doing. Five hours an hour, mm. and taken down to your cell. That's what it is. You have to be an arsehole. There's no please or thank you. It's who can kick the door the loudest. So we reached out to the Department of Corrections about stories of degrading treatment at the hands of guards, and this is what they said. We expect a high standard of all our staff, and behaviour as alleged wouldn't be acceptable in any circumstances. Our code of conduct makes our expectations of staff clear, and bullying is listed as an example of inappropriate behaviour in these expectations. All staff agree to the corrections code of conduct before starting their employment with us. Anyway, when it comes to how it feels to go through all of this, I reckon Jamie got it spot on. I've heard of a few people that have been to jail and they say, oh, you know, like, oh, the food is shit or I miss having a phone or... But to me, like, going to prison was like disappearing, like, like completely disappearing. It was just about becoming nothing. So you and Jess both talk about coming from pretty middle-class supportive families, but that isn't the case for a lot of people who end up in prison. Yeah, exactly, and that's well established. It's why judges have always been asked to consider a person's background and circumstances when it comes to sentencing, and it's why Section 27 reports exist. Do you want to explain what a Section 27 report is? Yeah, for sure. So sometimes these are called cultural reports, but basically a judge or an offender can request that a report is written on an offender's background, and these reports can have an impact on sentencing. Which is massive, right? So it means if someone has had a particularly rough time, they've experienced a lot of trauma, there could be a reduction in the sentence that they're given, eh? Yeah. Or, if a judge can see that a community-based sentence will mean better support for someone, that person can avoid jail time altogether. And the number of Section 27 reports being written up has gone up hugely in recent years. But getting funding for them hasn't always been easy. So many alleged offenders don't get the chance to access them. But your original point was it's pretty well accepted that certain life circumstances contribute to the likelihood of somebody ending up in front of a judge. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
I think my childhood had a lot to play in how I viewed the world. This is Becca. She's currently studying in Rotorua. In her words, she's passionate about growing and bettering herself through education. It's taken her a long time to get to where she is now. Yeah, I, th- I feel like if I had a healthy and stable, nourishing environment, that things may have been different. So my mother, who's a heroin addict, and my father were not in a healthy place, and we uh, got removed from the care and went into SIPs, and then some stuff happened in SIPs care. SIPs is child, youth and family now known as Oranga Tamariki. And I become dependent on drugs at a young age, and that's sort of how it just snowballed, yeah. Becca's first arrest was back in 2008. It was for a bunch of different charges, theft, fraud, possession of drug utensils, and she'd just knocked off work. So I, I used to prostitute K-Road, and so I went to prison um, like in a skirt and a little half top, and then I got sailed up with another girl. She was young, loud, and I was coming down from the meth. I ended up having a fight with her. She got removed from my cell. The cellmate took Becca's shoes as she left, and the prison was short on uniforms. So when Becca turned up in the breakfast line the next day, she was still dressed for Karangahape Road, but without any shoes. I remember taking my food and just going back to my cell and just lying there and sleeping. And then it was like just the anxiousness of waiting on how long I was going to get. I think I got sentenced to 18 months. Over the next 11 years, Becca was in and out of prison pretty constantly. So um, I've either been on probation, parole, bail, curfew, home detention, Ian Bail, um, reporting, you name it. Because she was in and out so much, the process of going through the RO was different for Becca. It wasn't so scary, but it was full on in other ways. It was always really embarrassing for me when the guards were like, oh, you're back, you know, you're back. How long are you going to be here for this time, you know? Or when I'd get released, they'd be like, okay, see you back in two weeks. They'd seen the girls that didn't have a chance when they were released, and so they knew that they were going to come back, you know? But as hard as prison was, it wasn't as hard as life outside. Because my lifestyle outside of prison was so hectic with the drugs and the prostitution and the unhealthy boyfriends and all of the carry-on that I'd been living on. It was actually quite nice just to be able to sleep and eat and not have to worry about where I was going to get my next fix or my next urn or anything like that. So that have been my relief periods from life. Prison is a relief period from life. That's pretty full on. Yeah, but it's pretty common. This is Rangi. Now that I look back on it, uh, my um, thing started when I was still a baby. He also had a tough childhood. The environment that I was brought up around, domestics and all of that other stuff you see in Once We're Warriors, you know, that was my lifestyle. So I was born into that, that way of life. I didn't see anything else like, a, you know, like what as to say a normal life. What, what does that look like? Rangi looked up to the men in his life growing up. And while there were a few that stayed on the straight and narrow, they usually did it by going into the army, so they weren't around. The ones that were around were the drug dealers, you know, they were my family, drug dealers, gangsters, that sort of stuff. They were were my um, role models, yeah. So it wasn't long, really. It was like 
To be honest, this started for me at uh, primary school, before primary school, you know, the dishonesty, um, stealing, um, lying, because I've learnt it already. I found myself fall into this pattern of every other month or year I was in prison. Both Becca and Rangi were in and out of prison for years. And we'll hear from other people whose stories go like that too. It's common in New Zealand. Our recidivism rates are pretty high. Recidivism means reoffending, eh? Yeah, so according to the most recent numbers, 58% of people who leave prison are resentenced within two years, with nearly 40% of those people ending up back in prison. Far out, that's actually really high. Like, if the purpose of prison is to try to scare people straight, it doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, absolutely. For so many people, the justice system is like being trapped in a giant revolving door. The government itself has issued multiple reports saying that people coming out of prison are more likely, in fact, to, to harm others. This is Tila Moose. Tia is a co-founder of People Against Prisons Aotearoa or PAPA and the Prisoner Correspondence Network. Plus, he's a lecturer in criminology at Te Heringawaka, Wellington University. If you look at people with exactly the same history and offending and you give one person a prison sentence and you give someone else a community sentence, the person with a prison sentence is more likely to go on and do more harmful things. Yeah, that's pretty wily, man. A person with a prison sentence is more likely to go on and do more harm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why some experts call prisons crime universities. Because if you go in with a minor crime or spend some time on remand, you're going to learn from the people around you. We're going to explain remand stuff in more detail later, but just quickly... Remand is what it's called when someone is held in custody to wait for their trial or sentencing, so you can go to prison before you've even been found guilty of anything. Yeah, that's right. And once you leave prison, it's harder to get a job, a house. And I'm guessing you're likely to be even more disconnected from whānau and community, you know, all of the things that help keep someone on the proverbial straight and narrow. Prisons produce harm in our societies, not just while people are in prison, but once they get out as well. Um, So by that measure, they certainly don't make it safer for us. Okay, let's catch up with Jamie again. Last we heard, she was still in the RO, had just been strip searched, she had cold feet but she hadn't been given any socks and the guards were laughing at her. Like it's all lit up with like these massive lights and um, I was like looking up at the cameras everywhere. And then she was taken to her cell. And the whole way over there, there was two guards and they were just talking to themselves. And then, that's it? Like, that, like what the fuck? What Jamie means is she'd kind of expected a bit more in the way of orientation. Nothing fancy, just like, okay, here's where you get food, here's how to access medical, etc. But there was nothing. I remember one night, um, like, having, like, a real big cry and I was, like, trying to have, like, the most silent cry in the world... I thought my cellmate was asleep and she just said to me, it's all good, chick, like, it does get better. And that's just all she said to me and I just thought, is that it? Like, so it's just something that you have to learn to deal with. There was no changing it. We asked corrections about this and they said that they have a detailed induction process which ensures that prisoners know the rules, routines and procedures and their rights and responsibilities. There's also something called a local induction handbook that all new prisoners are supposed to get, but Jamie says she didn't receive anything like this. Back when you were in prison, was it like that for you, Tommy? Did you have an induction or an orientation or whatever? No, nothing like that at all. So how do you figure it out when you're in that environment? 
So for me, I was lucky enough to be sold up with someone who's done quite a few legs. And by lag, you mean? Lag means a jail sentence. So um, yeah, this guy was great. And basically he, he showed me how to get by, how to use the kiosk machine to order food, how to apply for medical. You know, he even got us a cleaning job, which paid a whole $10 a week, <laughs> which uh, doesn't sound like much, but you know, you, you got a bit of privilege with that job. You know, the cleaners get uh, unlocked when, you know, other people aren't, so you get um, you get first access to the phones. Sounds like you kind of lucked out with him, eh? Yeah, for sure. And it can make a huge difference, actually, for how things turn out for you. This time, because I was clean, it was all pretty raw, and... This is my mate Jess again. Remember, she'd been to prison before, but that didn't stop her from using. This time, she went in six months clean, and the temptation to escape reality was strong. Yeah, my first week, and I definitely wanted to score drugs, and I asked someone who I thought might be able to help, and, yeah, and she sort of said to me, no, uh, you should hold on to your clean time, you know, I've got a lot of respect for you, and you should walk out the gates with your head held high. So I didn't use drugs, um, and I am still clean today, which was 11 years, over 11 years ago. So I'm really lucky <laughs> that, um, that that girl was there. I've never been able to track her down. I hope she's doing okay, you know, but um, the statistics would tell me otherwise. But yeah, I'm really grateful for her, for sure. That's so great to hear. Yeah, she's a legend. Well, team, that's it for episode one of True Justice. In the next episode... We learn more about the day-to-day of life on the inside. You find happiness in the smallest of things. Um, Once you realise that um, you've had everything stripped from you. I was trying to be someone I wasn't, even though I was just like a scared little boy, really. I was attacked twice in the men's prison. And the broken systems that make it way harder than it needs to be for the people living through it. You wouldn't want to read too fast because, like, you didn't know when you got to go to the library next. (laughs) Some of the girls in the unit were smoking tampons, and so tampons became like a restricted item. It doesn't work, it's not just, it's not fair. This episode of True Justice was hosted by me, Tommy Doran. And me, Anachaya Scotney. It was produced by Just Speak, a not-for-profit organisation that advocates for transformational change in the criminal justice system. Writing and research was a team effort by staff at Just Speak and PopSock Media, as well as former Just Speak advocacy lead, Emily Rosenthal. Editing and sound design was by PopSock Media, with music from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme music, What You Can Hear Now by Kōtsiro. That's me with Thomas Arbor. You can find our song, All the Little Birds, on Bandcamp. Interviews and recordings with our storytellers and experts were done by Emily Rosenthal, Chantal Arfina, myself, and our amazing Just Speak volunteers. Narration, recording and mixing was by Phil Brownlee at Victoria University's Miramar Creative Centre. Our journalistic and legal checks and balances came from Francis Morton, Anna Harcourt and the legal team at TVNZ's youth news platform, RE, who supported this project.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.